0: All right, today, I wasn't sure if I was on there for a second or not, uh, today we're going to be picking up in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Um, I'd like to go ahead and read the text together before we before we get started. So if you have your Bibles, would you open it up? Um, all right, I'm reading out of the NIV. If you happen to be reading out of the ESV, the words are just slightly different in some places, but um, I'm sure you can follow along. Uh, let's Let's read together. Do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Quite a lot to cover in this um, in this section. And so... Uh, we'll get right to it in a minute, but I want, uh, you know, anytime we we approach the topic of divorce, um, anytime we approach that, one of the things we have to consider uh, is a kind of a greater understanding of what divorce is from the context of the whole Bible. Now, I'm not going to go in-depth into divorce today, um, because I don't think that is the heart of the issue. I think it's the main symptom that he wants to address but I don't think it's the heart of the issue so we're going to touch on it a little bit and Jay, uh, either next week or the week after we will be touch- touching on divorce from Matthew so I don't feel like I need to really go all into divorce today I will mention it, it's not going to be the focus um, the focus is the faithlessness behind divorce that's the focus when we say faithlessness, or in the text here in the NIV, it says uh, unfaithful. I want you to be aware that in the original language, this is not like a um, this is not like a like we have where we have a word and we use a negative form like un uh, for like unbelief or un-unbelievable or ununfaithful. It's not like that. It's not like you have the word and then you have this un you know or this negation that that, that takes away and, and means the opposite. It's not just a lack of something, right? Which you might have a, a word like uh, "incredible," you know, or "uncredible," or uh, "incredulous." It's not—it's not a lack of something. The word underlying here is betrayal, treachery. In, in one of the translations, I think it's in the NASB. It says, "Do not deal treacherously with each other." And so for our edification and for the reminder that it's not just a lack of something, but it's the opposite of it. It's not a lack of faithfulness, it's the opposite of faithfulness. It's the tendency to betray, the tendency to be treacherous that he's dealing with in the text. And so I put that in, in green in the text when we look at it later so that you understand it's treachery, it's betrayal. Not a lack of faithfulness, but the opposite of it. Let's pray, and then let's get into today's lesson. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you that your word reveals the sinfulness and the rebellion of our hearts. Thank you that at the same time, your word reveals your faithfulness and your ability to heal us, not only of all our physical infirmities, but of our faithlessness, of our treachery, our betrayal, our rebellion. God, it is my prayer today that You will expose the sinfulness of our hearts and that You will also remind us of the faithfulness of Your love. It's my prayer that, that those here who need to be convicted of sin will be convicted of sin and reminded of the mercy that is, that is always to be found in Jesus Christ. But it's also my prayer, Lord, that anybody here who has never trusted in Christ for their salvation, that they would be aware of that they would come to an understanding of their need for a Savior. Of their need to be healed from their rebellion. And thirdly, and probably most of all, Lord, it's my prayer that I would honor You with the way that I teach Your Word. Your Word is truth, but sometimes we can muddle it up with our ideas and our thoughts. And so God, I pray that You would just help me to be out of the way and help you to just, like, that You would just speak. And that You would speak to all of our hearts. Help us come to a right knowledge of what this passage is saying and then a right knowledge of how we ought to respond. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Could you advance me there, Jacob? Thank you. All right, so um, Jason uh, let you know in the beginning I wanted to uh, remind you of where we are and what we've been looking at, for those of you who haven't been in Malachi with us. Um, Each one of these, uh, the book of Malachi is divided up in a literary sort of way by these disputes. God will say something to the people through the prophet. Uh, God will speak to the people, and he'll accuse them of wrong that they've been doing, of guilt that they have, of a wickedness that they're displaying in their day-to-day lives. And then the people will say, but you say... And he's not necessarily saying that the people are sitting there listening to Malachi and going, wait a minute here. You know, that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is the attitude underneath. This is their inner rebellion acting against the word of God preached to them. And then following, usually that's the pattern, there's an elaboration of the sin and the guilt. This is where we are in the book. We're in the third dispute today. And I want to remind you of this, because I think this, we cannot think about Malachi and the lessons that are being learned in Malachi and divorce that from the covenant of the Lord. Um, This whole chapter is extremely relevant to the topic of conversation. Uh, For those of you who were with us a few years ago when we went through Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7 is where where God reminded the people, through Moses, as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, Their parents already failed to go into the promised land because of disobedience. And here he says, when you do go into the promised land, I want you to destroy all the idolatrous people, and I want you to smash their altars and smash their idols. Don't intermarry with these people because they're going to lead you into idolatry. So this passage is highly relevant. And this verse right here reminds the people of Israel of the covenant faithfulness of God. And that's key to understanding Malachi. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. And what was the beginning of the book of Malachi? I have loved you, says the Lord. But Israel was doubting his faithfulness. I would say more than doubting, they were rejecting his faithfulness. What I want to begin with today is the understanding that the covenant of the Lord with Israel meant that each member of the covenant community had obligations to each other. I'm not going to go there now, but I would would encourage you later on to look at Leviticus chapter 19 and see the obligations that the people had to each other. Starting in verse 10 of chapter 2. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful, by being treacherous to one another? I I love how Malachi asks a question that's not really a question. He certainly wants wants the people to examine their hearts. He wants them to look inward. When he says, you know, why do we do this? Why do we profane? But really this is an indictment. A prophet can bring one of two type of messages. Either he can bring a promise of hope, or he can bring a warning about sin. I mean, you could divide up all prophecy according to that. And usually when the prophets come, they're coming with a warning. One of, the, one of the most clear ways it set up a red flag for a prophet who's going to tell you something false is one who's going to preach that you're all right and nothing's wrong with you. Everything's good. Peace. Peace. God's really happy with you. You hear a prophetic message like that, you should wonder. You should be concerned. Usually those guys were shown to be false prophets. He says you've been treacherous to one another. Judah desecrated. Pay attention to what he says here: profane or desecrate. To profane is to treat something as unholy. To desecrate, when you look at the, um, when you look at the the use use of desecration in the Old Testament, you see things like this altar was desecrated. This holy place was desecrated. Um, there's one mention of uh, I think it's Josiah who was reforming and he took all the high places and he. He burned human bones on one of the altars to desecrate it, to make it unfit for sacrifice. The idea was, this is no longer fit for its holy use for which it was set aside. It's been profaned. It's been desecrated. It's key to understanding what's happening to the people of Israel in the book of Malachi. Judah had desecrated the covenant of the Lord by being treacherous toward each other. And he goes on to say in verse 11, Judah has been unfaithful, treacherous, a detestable thing. This word is also abomination. For those of you who think that there might be a difference, it's the same word, abomination. A hateful thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by burying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, May the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Now, you might, you might wonder about a couple of these points. What does it mean? Um, I think we, would, we can answer that question in just a second. But first, we need to understand that they betrayed each other. They profane the temple. How, how does marrying women from another group who worship another god, how does that profane? How does that render the temple unfit or unholy? How does that, how does that um, contaminate the temple? How does that happen? Um, you could look in a couple of places in the Bible. You could look in, um, in the New Testament in Acts, where Paul is thought to have brought a Gentile somebody from the nations, into the temple of the Lord. He's thought to have done that. And they take him out and they try to kill him. They try to beat him to death. Um, And they did so because they thought that he had profaned the holy place, the place where they were supposed to worship God alone, and their their thinking was, these guys are Gentiles. They're not Jews. They have no right uh, to be in our temple. They will profane it. You could look back at um, Nehemiah chapter 13. I think that's one of the clearer places to see it as well. Uh, Tobiah, who was of mixed ancestry and could not prove his Jewish heritage by a a wicked priest, had been allowed quarters inside the temple while Nehemiah was back, uh, I think, in Susa at the time. And so Nehemiah comes back, he finds him there, and he throws all of his stuff outside doesn't look like there's an eviction process. He just throws all this stuff outside, and he has that room in the temple purified. Why? Because Tobiah had no business in the temple. He was not a priest of the Lord. He couldn't prove his ancestry in Israel. He had no part in the people of Israel, and so his presence in the temple profaned it, and it had to be purified. I'm going to go ahead and go to Nehemiah 13. I marked the place just in case I wanted to go there, and I I do. And I think it's really important. I'm not going to read the part about Tobiah uh, and his desecration, but I want to read what what Nehemiah says he found there. And it's a little bit longer of a passage, but I think it's really, really important. In verse 15, this is after Nehemiah came back after a time in Susa, after he had served as governor in, in Judah for a while. He says, in those days... I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Now, you're going to have some people from other towns coming in, um, and and, Nehemiah is going to take some precautions to keep them from selling on the Sabbath. Uh, But then again, in verse 23, we're going to pick it up again, and he says, Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, all of these had foreign gods. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other people and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and I called down curses on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and say, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? If you remember the we talked about this earlier in in our study of, of, of Malachi, this comes on the heels after Ezra had returned, after Zerubbabel had returned, after Nehemiah had returned initially. And the people were turning away again. If you remember the scene in Ezra, when Ezra finds out that the people who came under Zerubbabel, that their 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 ancestors, or I'm sorry, rather their descendants had married foreign women, even some of the priests. He was appalled, and he said, we've got to stop this. We've got to separate from these people. And here they are again, again, marrying idolatrous women. This is not about ethnicity. In Exodus chapter 12 or 13, I think, think 12, we see a provision for any foreign person to join with Israel. Their people, their group, their clan, family, all the men had to be circumcised. And then, once they had done that and they had participated with Israel, uh, under that is as a, a, understanding that they had to have had some kind of um, conversion where they're, they're believing in the God of Israel, they're joining with the people and worshiping their God, they're getting uh, circumcised like they are, and they can become one with the people. That provision was always there. This is not about that. This is about idolatry. And as we could see in Nehemiah, They weren't being brought up in the language of Judah. The question is, how are they going to know God if they can't even read the law? How are they going to know God if they don't know the language of of, of God? I don't know the language of God, but I mean the language that God revealed his word in. It's obvious that they're being influenced by these foreign uh, cultures and their idolatrous practices and not being raised in accordance with the law. The text doesn't say, but many of them were probably not circumcised. They don't speak the language, they're not circumcised. They're not able to come into the temple because their people haven't, as one, joined in with the worship of the one true God. So the problem with this is that they're turning away people who are supposed to worship the Lord. They are contaminating the covenant community of God by their idolatry. And they're disobeying God by not separating themselves from those people. If you go back to Deuteronomy 13, I'm not going to do it now, but you'd see that the provision that the, um, the the provision that God made for what we do if people are worshiping idols among Israel was death. He says, in I can't remember the verse exactly, but it's in Deuteronomy 13. He says, even if it's somebody in your uh, your close relative your son or your daughter or your your wife that you love, your close friend, have no pity on them. Your hand must be the first to stone them because of this idolatry. The Lord took idolatry very seriously, and Israel was not. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail. Because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask or you say, why? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful, treacherous to her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your covenant. Bottom word is cut off there on the slide. I apologize for that. but The word is covenant. The wife... Of your covenant. There's a lot in this passage, and there's probably a few questions that you have. And if you have questions that I don't answer, um, please you can ask me later and I'll go into it. There's just, we have a limited time here. Um, But the people were weeping and wailing about what? About their sin? Because they were confronted with the evil in their own heart? Because they were broken over their sin? No because they weren't getting the tangible blessings that they wanted. And if you look in Ezra and Nehemiah, it's clear, yes, they had a temple, but it wasn't quite the temple they wanted. And they ended up building a wall, but it took a really long time and it was really difficult. They were planting and they weren't getting what they wanted, and Haggai speaks to this, right? Because Haggai Haggai was a prophet who came to them when they had started the temple, They'd built the altar, and they'd laid the foundation, but they couldn't finish the temple yet. And he says, this isn't the time to be building your own houses. This is the time to build the Lord's house. But the central issues are the same, whether it's specifically to do with the temple, or even after here in Malachi, when everything is built. The city walls are up. The temple is constructed. But the people are still disobedient to the Lord. They're not making right sacrifices. They're not bringing in the tithes that they should be bringing into his house. And their attitudes are all wrong. Here, they're more concerned with their day-to-day situation than they are with the favor that God has shown, uh, even in in the first section that we read in Malachi. where He says, I've loved you. I've set you apart from all the other people on the earth. If anybody else sets, uh, sets it in their minds to rebuild after they've been destroyed, that's fine, they can try. But if I haven't ordained it, they will be destroyed. And they will not prosper. But you, Israel, I haven't turned away from. Because I set my covenant love upon you. And you. You're more concerned with your day-to-day blessings with the fact than with the fact that you have broken your covenant relationship, a covenant you made before me, you've broken that covenant relationship with your spouses. Now here he's speaking to the men. Um, The reason he's speaking to the men is because women didn't have a right to divorce their husbands. He's speaking to the men. Has not the one God made you you belong to him, body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful or treacherous to your wife. I wanted to read from the uh, ESV here at this point. I think it'll be helpful for us to understand this. The wording is kind of hard to understand, and I think honestly it's because the the original language is probably a little bit um, a little bit unclear sometimes. And we you find you'll find this especially in Job you'll find places where the original language is either unclear or debatable. And so I wanted to read the ESV's rendering of this too, um, because I think that the ESV helps us better, a little bit better to understand what's going on here. Um, And so in verse 15, he says this. Actually, I'm going to start at 13. He says, The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? And here comes the the part where it's just a little bit different. He says, the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife, wife of your youth. Now, I think there's probably a lot in here about God's involvement in the marriage covenant. But I think one of the things that I, the ESV, the way they render it, and I think this is probably, this seems to me, the better sense of the understanding here. He says, did not God make them one with a, with a portion of His Spirit in the union? In other words, when God made Adam and Eve, didn't He call them one flesh? Didn't He say they're one? And I would tell you that, that Genesis chapter 1 In that that particular part, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where Moses makes a comment on the creation and the giving of Eve to Adam and Adam's words at receiving her and saying, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? He says that God made the two one flesh. They were one. And this one, I believe, in the human uh, relationship of marriage, in the covenant of marriage, is a reflection of, of God's diversity in unity, of the fact that He's Father and Son and Holy Spirit, yet one divine essence. And that in that way, humanity is created to show the glorious nature of God, the inexplicable, in in a lot of ways, nature of God in His triune nature. God says, these are one. Later, Jesus is going to say, so what God has made one, don't tear it apart. And that helps us to understand the, the, the later on when in, in Malachi chapter 2, and we're, we're going to read it in a second, where he says, the man who does this, who divorces his wife, he covers his garment with violence. He's like a man walking out of a bloodbath covered in blood because of all the violence he's done through this act of divorcing his wife. But God made you one. If you're married here today, God made you and your spouse one. One flesh. It's a beautiful, wonderful promise. And it comes with obligations, doesn't it? You have obligations to each other. You have obligations to God because He's the one who who puts you in covenant relationship. It may not have been like Adam and Eve, right? None of us woke up with a scar on our side and a woman by by our side. That didn't happen to any of us. But make no mistake, God sovereignly gave you your wife or your husband if you're married. Do not be unfaithful to the Lord by being unfaithful to your spouse. The other thing I want us to notice about this passage is that the Lord designed covenant marriage to produce godly children. So watch out and don't betray your wives. Now, talk about godly children. What do you mean by he made the covenant to produce godly children? If we have two godly parents, it's just automatically going to produce godly children? No. But in the provision of the law, God said in Deuteronomy chapter 6, diligently teach my laws to your children so that they will uh, live long in the land that I've given you. And when in time they ask questions about this, you need to tell them what it means. You need to explain these things to them. You need to talk about my law wherever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, in your house, and when you go out and when you come back. You need to tie it as a, as a reminder around your wrists and around your head. I think more he's thinking of in what you do and in what you think. But, but it still would serve the purpose of reminding the people all the time who they serve and, and what the, his laws were. So that godly children would be produced. Were those children that Nehemiah saw in chapter 13, couldn't speak the language, not being raised according to Jewish custom, not being raised to fear the Lord God who had revealed himself to the fathers and to Moses and saved the people from Egypt and led them through the desert and, and given victory over, over the, the idolatrous people in the promised land? Were they being raised that way? No. How in the world could, he have, could they have godly offspring if they weren't even obeying God? Those of you with children know that your, par- your, your children learn more from what you do than what you say. But I can guarantee you, if you don't teach them who the Lord is, and you don't obey them, you will raise godless children. Does it mean that God can't save them later on in their life? No. Does it mean that if you raise your children according to the Word, it's an automatic guarantee that they will serve God and they'll become a part of the covenant community that they'll give their lives to Jesus? Does it guarantee it? No. But that's the best shot you can give them. And so if you do not teach your children to fear the Lord, and you do not obey the Lord yourself, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about a constant return of repentance from sin and obedience to the Lord. A constant return. If you don't, you will raise godless children. If you do, you're giving your children the best shot at a redeemed life. So watch out and don't betray your wives. And women, watch out and don't betray your husbands. Don't betray your children. Don't betray your church. Those were both. I'm trying to be heavier on women. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. The ESV says, uh, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. I already kind of gave you the picture there says the Lord Almighty. So be on guard and do not be unfaithful. And I've already hinted at this, but I'm just going to say it again because I think it's important. Inside the nation of Israel, you have people who are covenanted upward with God. They have obligations to God. And because they have obligations to God, they have obligations to each other. So if you take a community of people who are supposed to be worshiping the Lord, And then you have a whole big section of that community who's unfaithful to their husbands or unfaithful to their wives, raising kids who, even if they raise them with a a head knowledge of God, children are not stupid. Children spot your hypocrisy. Children will spot your failings sometimes faster than you do. They're not fools. If you tell them to fear the Lord, but you don't, what are you really telling them? The Lord is contemptible. You may disregard anything the Bible says because of the way I live my life. In this picture here, he covers his garment with violence. Again, I, when I was thinking about this, it, all I could see was a guy that was coated in gore because he just walked in and committed an atrocity and killed his whole family. But it's not just the family. Right? That's where it starts. It starts with the wife, and he's addressed that. It extends to the children. He's, ext- he's talked about that. And it really extends to the entire community. The destruction that a person brings by being faithless to God extends to the whole covenant community. And that's really how I'm looking at, at this passage. He says... The Lord said that the two of you, you husband and you wife, you're one flesh, but you've done violence to yourself, your wife, your children, and the whole covenant community. So watch out. Don't be treacherous. Be on guard, he says twice. Be vigilant. Three things is a summary of the charges that he brings. The Lord had prohibited marriage with idolaters, but they married idolaters. The Lord hates divorce, but they divorced their wives. The Lord hates empty religious activity, but here they are weeping on His altars while living in disobedience. Religious posturing. Pretense. Emptiness. Judah is faithless. They profane the covenant of the Lord. They profane His temple. Now you remember from last week that the priests are unfit to intercede for the people. They have profaned the covenant of the Lord. So let's take a step back from this particular passage for just a second and look at the position of the people in Malachi's day. Their priests think that the Word of God is a joke. They don't take His Word to heart. They don't take Him seriously. They don't take His offerings seriously. They show contempt for His offerings. And so God says, I wish you would close the temple because I'm not pleased with you. I'm not accepting your offerings. You don't take me seriously. I'm not happy with you. And unless you thought that boy, these poor people of Judah, they have rotten priests, terrible leaders. He says, Judah, you're just as bad. Yes, you don't have priests who are fit to intercede for you, but you don't have hearts that actually want anybody to intercede for you. You're not taking God seriously either. You don't care about his word either. All you care about is the benefits. All you care about is the literal land and seed and and blessing. That's all you care about. You don't care about the honor that it is to be called out of captivity and namelessness and be raised as God's own children. What a horrible position that, that the people in Malachi's day are under. They have unfit priests and they themselves are unfit and don't want to repent anyway. They are full of faithlessness. They are betrayers of each other, the community, the covenant, the temple, and most importantly, the Lord their God. Next week, we'll talk about the plan for the people in Malachi's day. We'll talk about the promise of God. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that today. But I want to get to the church. Because it's easy for us to go, well, so those people back then, they were faithless. It's because they just, they just had temporary priests. So they were faithless. Now, one part of the people in Malachi's day's problem has been removed. We have a faithful high priest. He never, ever fails to intercede for us. He's never unable. He's never less than perfectly righteous. His word is never, God never says to Jesus, that's unacceptable. That's not a good acceptable offering. It's always acceptable through Jesus Christ. But the question for us as the church is, are we acceptable? Or are we faithless? Are we treacherous? And so we can modify the same things that Malachi said to the nation of Israel, to the the people of Judah, and we can apply them to ourselves, and we need to. So to the covenant community of God's people, this is what I have to say to us. And this is what Malachi has to say to us. Faithlessness to each other is contempt for the Lord. God has made us, the church, His covenant people, through Jesus Christ. He intercedes for us as king, as prophet, and as priest. But our covenant with God obligates us to each other. Now, just in a general sense, before we get to marriage members of Grace Baptist, our covenant with the living God makes us obligated to each other. We must not be treacherous in our relationships with each other. I'm not going to read it now, but I would encourage strongly each one of you to go to our covenant statement, the second point of our covenant statement. The first point is that we covenant together to love God. And then we talk about in that statement how we're going to love God. And secondarily... We covenant to love one another. This is the way Jesus summed up the whole of the law in the Old Testament was love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the other members of your covenant community as you do yourself. If we show treachery to each other, we profane the covenant. We sin against God. We sin against each other. We betray a contempt that we have in our hearts for the Word of God that commanded us to care and love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondly, I want you to consider this. I know that none of the members of Grace would raise their children to go pursuing women from different religious backgrounds, okay? But I think we can broaden it out a little bit more than that. Because your choice of your spouse one day is going to affect the entire covenant community. If you're a member of a church and you get married, I think most churches are going to do their homework. They're going to talk to your spouse. They're going to make sure. They're going to ask you, hopefully, beforehand, is this person saved? And they're going to talk to that person. And what's your testimony? They're going to, they're going to do all that homework. But your choice of spouse affects not only the covenant community, um, in, in general, your church. It'll also affect your your home life, and it'll affect your children one day. So when you think about who to marry, I I, I can't be um, I can't be too um, strong on this. Do not consider your spouse just for whether that person is personally attractive to you. Consider what type of person he or she is in the Lord. Women, if you're looking, young women, we don't actually, yeah, there you go. It's funny, a couple of years ago, I could have talked to a lot more people, but you guys, guys, all paired off, praise God. Um, But if you're young and you're thinking about marriage, think about what kind of person you're marrying is this a person who takes their relationship with Jesus Christ seriously? I'm not talking about a perfect person. You won't find anybody. But did they take their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ seriously? The covenant community should be broken over sin, not circumstances. And I know... I believe that you guys are a lot like me, and the first time circumstances hit us that are hard, we don't immediately think of God's great plan in making us more sanctified through it. The first thing we think is, ah, get me out of this. This is horrible. This is uncomfortable. I don't like it. And I would say, probably when we do think about our our, our sanctification... We, we finally we realize, okay, I'm, I'm having a wrong attitude. God, I need to have a right attitude toward my sanctification. How broken are we over our sin? The covenant community should be more broken over sin than over their circumstances. And not because our sin makes us think less of ourselves and we'd really like to be able to have a better opinion of ourselves. And we'd really like other people around us not to see us in our sin. We'd really like them to have a higher opinion of ourselves like we do. But broken of our sin because of the way that it profanes the Lord our God, the way that it shows contempt for the Lord our God, the way that it is shameful that people who have been bought with a price of the precious blood of Christ would so easily turn around and show contempt for Him. We should be broken over our sin, not over our circumstances. Faithless marriages in the covenant community blaspheme the Lord because they distort the gospel. When, when we are faithless toward our wives, in any of our biblical responsibility, we distort the gospel Of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus loved his church. With absolutely everything. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 5. That human marriage is really about the relationship. Between God and and, and his people. Through Jesus Christ. The bridegroom. And the church his bride. A godly marriage. Shows the glorious nature of that relationship. So a godly husband loves his wife. Even to his own hurt. To see her gospel good. To see her growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Growing in holiness. Growing in sanctification. Growing in faith in the Lord. Through a life of obedience. A godly husband will gladly do something uncomfortable for himself. For his wife and one day his children. For their gospel good. And to show the obedience of the church. Even... not understanding what's the ultimate picture. A godly wife will submit to her husband. And sometimes that's going to mean even when he is foolish and makes a mistake. I'm not saying don't say something to your husbands. Please, use the wisdom God's given you. Talk to him. But as wives submit to their husbands, they show what the church ought to To do what Jesus died to make the church able to do. Submit to the headship of Christ. Because if we don't, if we live in opposition to that, then we distort the gospel. As a covenant community, we are accountable to the Lord to train and teach godly offspring. I said it before, you cannot guarantee that your children will follow Christ. And by failing, you will not necessarily keep them out of the kingdom of God. That's true. Many people come into the covenant community from a godless family. And many people from a covenant community, from faithful parents, rebel and never come back to the Lord. That's true, it happens but if you want to give your children a shot if you want to give your children the best possible introduction to the Lord Jesus Christ then you live for the Lord Jesus Christ you live a life of submissive obedience to God and his word check your heart in your rebellion don't be quick to just be like oh i'm sorry forgive me thank you glad you know don't be so quick Yes, forgiveness is always available to you. But don't use the grace of God as a license to do evil. Because your children will pick up on that. And God wants you to produce godly offspring. He's commanded you to do your best. If you live a life of repentance and obedience to the Lord... And if you don't try to beef up your image for your kids, to try to act like you're better than you are, if you apologize to your kids when you need to apologize, if you're humble, if you remind your children of the faithfulness of God through Jesus Christ, and don't give them the impression that somehow some, some sad morality is going to get them to heaven, some good attempt at doing the right thing, Don't teach them that a WWJD bracelet will get them to heaven when you live a life in opposition to the Word of God. Because you're teaching them to profane Him. And you're teaching them that that moralism is okay as long as nobody sees the real you. If you diligently follow the Lord, if you live a life of faith and repentance, if you live an honest life of faith and repentance, then you'll be doing the best you can for your children, and you'll be fulfilling your godly obligation to Him and to your children. Finally, divorce and infidelity destroy covenant community. Because I don't think that Malachi's point is just the damage that you do to yourself and your wife, although that is huge, huge, devastating violence. If you know anybody who's been divorced, if you know people who have the children of divorce then you know that it does horrible violence to the whole family and to the community and to the next not just to the immediate children but to their generations people who who walk away from marriages very easily tend to produce children who walk away from marriages very easily and that spreads that spreads what I want you to understand, because anytime time, and I said I was going to do this just briefly, there is always repentance and forgiveness. But if you walk into sin counting on later repentance and forgiveness, it shows that you don't have the right heart toward God. It shows you do not have a right attitude. You are not taking His Word to heart. Divorce and infidelity, he doesn't really talk about infidelity in the sense of, of, of unfaithfulness to your, uh, and I mean, sexual immorality in a marriage, right? Going outside the marriage. Um, he doesn't really talk to that directly here, but he talks about the importance of the marriage, and so I want to mention that as well. Infidelity just does horrible damage. And I know some of you know that. Infidelity does horrible damage to you, to your spouse. To whoever you're unfaithful with, to the community, to the church, to your children, and your children's children. The, um, the reason I wanted to relate this, these warnings to the community is because we as a church, we are a covenant people. Now People debate about who's in the covenant community and who's not. But all of us who have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation are a member of that covenant community. And we have obligations to each other. To every single one. The way that relationship works out most often is going to be with your spouse. I believe that's why Malachi is talking to, here, talking to the people this way here. Because it's the deepest human relationship and has the potential to do the most damage in the community when it goes wrong. But any kind of faithlessness to each other is faithlessness to God. Remember the purposes of Malachi. I set this out at the beginning um, when we first started uh, going through Malachi together a few weeks ago. The purposes here are to reveal the Lord to people, to remind people who know the Lord of, of who He is, of His righteousness and His Word. Secondly, to warn Israel about their guilt. So if something I've said has made you feel guilty today, And it's connected with the word, right? It's connected with sin in your life. The word is preached to the church week after week because we're still guilty. And week by week, we commit sin against the Lord, and we need to repent of that sin and turn to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. We need to be broken over our sin. Somebody needs to warn us. The word is preached. And we're warned. Thirdly, to explain the heart of unfaithfulness. And to encourage repentance. Why? Because we are not in the same position the people of Malachi's day were. They had faithless priests. And they themselves were faithless. It seemed like they had no hope. But even if you are faithless day to day, you will find that Christ is faithful you'll find that He's always able to make you stand if you have a heart of repentance. He's always able to make you right with God. Because He made the sacrifice that absorbed all the wrath of God on your behalf. Repent. And then, not next week, well, a little bit next week and a little bit the week after, we'll talk about the Messiah. coming hope. Because even in Malachi's day, when it seemed there was no hope, God gives them hope in the Messiah to come. And we look backward on that hope. We look backward at the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made. This morning when we took the communion together, we were reminded of His broken body and shed blood. All of our sin shows our faithlessness. sin that we commit against each other and our faithlessness to each other that does damage within the body of Christ being faithless to our spouses does damage to us and our children and their children after them and the whole covenant community it's an affront to a holy God but we have a high priest in a few minutes, we're going to sing the gospel song. Really glad that Jason chose that song for this week. If you have been faithless, remember that he is faithful. If you're being faithless right now, and you need to confess something to God and to someone else, then don't just say, I need to do that, but make a plan to do it. Don't just let faithlessness stand. Confess it and get right with that other person. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for the strong and serious warnings of the book of Malachi. Father, I pray that, that if anyone has been convicted, that they will repent. Lord, many of us have made professions of faith in Jesus Christ. Him to be a faithful Savior. But I don't doubt that there are people here who have not made such a con- commitment. And they need to make a commitment to you. They're not in the covenant community. They've been circling around it. But they're not in the covenant community because they've never submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. They've never submitted to you that they are sinners. Recognize that they needed a Savior. Father, I pray that they will be convicted as well and that you'll bring them into the covenant community through the salvation that Jesus Christ made. Lord, thank you for your love and your mercy. Help us to live lives that honor you. Help us not to be faithless. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll stand with us as we we'll sing the gospel song.